Moving in general in a pandemic was hell. Our house in New Mexico went on the market in February and we went under contract in February to be to close in the middle of April. Well, okay, then in March everything went down and the people still wanted the house, we still wanted to move. We couldn't come back to Nashville. I had been in Nashville looking for houses in in February and March parts of those months and didn't really find one. So we thought, well, we'll go back in March and end of March and and look and find a house. No, couldn't do that. We had a fairly big house with two we had just gotten married, so we had two a bigger house with two people's stuff in there because I was in a small apartment and she was in a house before we got married and and we couldn't get rid of anything. Goodwill is closed. Salvation Army is closed. All the missions are closed. All the church donation places are closed. The library is closed. We could not, I was literally at the end, really begging people on the Nextdoor app and Facebook groups to come get furniture, you know, books, you know, stuff like that. Cause we knew we were going to downsize a little bit. And, um, and just having people come in to move, move us, I mean, and, you know, and I had, had to have some, a little bit of plumbing here and a little bit of electric, you know, stuff you have to do before you close in a house. So workmen had to be, keep coming in. And my wife was, Tanya's like, ah, you know, it was before everybody was used to the masks and the, and the, you know, six feet distance and everything. So we were constant. I was constantly getting too close to people. Anyway, what ended up happening was because we didn't have a place to move in, into anywhere, anywhere, we ended up, we were in New Mexico and it was a fairly safe place during the pandemic. The early days, New Mexico was actually one of the states that had very little spread. So we rented a place in Taos, New Mexico. We were in Santa Fe put our stuff all in a pod, had it taken away, went and lived in Taos for a month and then said, let's just go. So the middle of May, we packed up two cars and a trailer and the cat, her cat, which is now our cat. I'm a dog person, but that's another story. Anyway, um, and drove cross country. I, I really mapped it. Well, I had, I've driven cross country thousands of times, it seems. Not literally, but... You you have been a touring musician for... Exactly, for 40 life. years. So you go cross country, and, and actually in the last couple of years, I've probably been across country six times. But anyway, because I go to Maine, New Mexico, Nashville, New Mexico, LA, whatever, before the pandemic. You know, I knew what to do. I knew where to get gas. You get gas in a gas station. You pee in a rest area. You know, you don't eat, you bring food with, with you, you know? So we did it. And, you know, from New Mexico to Nashville is only two full days, unlike Maine, which is four full days. So we did it. Uh, We rented a place here and we've been in a rental. We're finally, so we're finally moving into our, our house that we bought um, in 10 days. So, uh, we're very excited about finally getting able, being able to settle because the pandemic basically put us into four months of living in out of storage units and in rentals. 
there must be sort of a special level of torture having moved to, obviously Nashville is one of the great global cities, but moving there and not being able to explore it and actually experience the city. Well, I've lived here twice before and, um, and I've been commuting here basically for 30 years. And so I've actually lived here twice before, but I've always, not always, but for most of that time, I had some kind of place here, whether I rented a room from a friend or had my own apartment or whatever. You know where to get gas, you know where to go to the bathroom, I know, you know where to eat. Yeah, I know the city, although it's changed a lot in the last five, six years, uh, 10 years maybe. It's changed a lot. It's now a big city. It was kind of a small city. And I really, the the core of my good friends are in Nashville. Now, obviously, you know, I have great friends that live all over the country, whether they're business friends or friends I met in the business, I should say, or high school friends or, you know, normal friends all over the country. But, um, and my family's still in New England, but except my brother who's in Georgia, but it's another story. Um, and, uh, but most, I have lots of really close friends in Nashville. When I say lots, you know, I mean a dozen really close friends. That's more than most close, most people have yeah. close friends. And, and, uh, and of course, you know, no, it's really strange to be here. Now I've been coming here. I mean, the, I was the last performer at the Bluebird in mm-hmm. March on March 12th was my gig next day closed down so you know i i've been i was here in january i was here in february i was here in march i was here all most of last year recording my new record so even though i was living in santa fe i was most mostly here and i stayed with uh, certain friends who have a guest house that i stay in so i had been here and enjoyed all those things you're talking about you know my yeah. friends and going to see friends play and eating out at my favorite restaurants and so on, visiting friends. So yeah, it has been interesting to be here. And there's the only music there is, is if you drive down Broadway, the bars are blaring their music from, you know, if anybody knows downtown Nashville, that's where the tourists go basically and all the bars are have live music and it's the boot shops and the you know whatever uh the uh planet hollywood and all that kind of stuff and they're still operating at some capacity i don't go there so i don't know how open they are but that's the only live music basically is the from the bars and um and we have a couple of friends i'd say four friends that we do porch coffees or courtyard coffees with or a courtyard dinner where we sit six feet apart and one party brings the food and and we also know each other's lifestyles so um and that's about it we go to the grocery store once in a while we'll go to target or something like that and uh in and out as fast as possible. This is your first major record under, I was going to say under, under your name in a while, but this yeah. is your first, this is your first major record literally under your, under my name. Yes. So this was like a big, I don't know if like coming out party is the right word, right? But like yeah. this was going to be a very momentous debut for you. 
it's got to be a really difficult time to try to to push music out into the world without being able to be out there and, and tour and play live. It's interesting because I had a bunch of stuff lined up and for this next year and the trajectory was really going well and I was, you know, getting ready to release the record. And then when it all happened, I just said, that's not happening. And I pulled back and then, uh, so I thought, well, I'll just like everybody else, I'll wait till 2021. Um, even though I finished the album last year around this time, you know, like everybody else, what are you going to do? I mean, you start doing live stream concerts and you start, you know, everybody's kind of like, okay, I'm going to do one Facebook concert a week and I'm going to, you know, post more on Instagram and I'm going to, you know, get new t-shirts and whatever else. But you, you really, this is before I decided to record the album. And, but all of us are like, what do we do now? And I mean, not just the music community, obviously, but, and it's particularly hard, I think, for those of us who are kind of on the middle rung of the ladder. We're not huge names. So it's not like, you know, 20,000 people are going to flock to my concert immediately online. And I'm not an unknown. I guess I'm not known as Sydney, but my career is an unknown. So those older fans who have followed my career or come in in the last 10, 15 years, you know, I have a good following. I'm grateful for my following. I, I you know, I, I think I, my career trajectory in the last 15 years was, has been much more than the splash I had in the late 70s and early 80s. You know, I think you know, I've established myself as as an artist. Obviously, in terms of public presence and, you know, in terms of being on the radio or being on American Bandstand, like that, that was the period, right? I mean, that was the time where there was really, there was a sense of kind of, to some degree, breaking through the, the mainstream. But your yeah. your career has transformed quite a bit. So what does it, what does it mean that it's it's bigger now or that it's better now? Well, I guess what I mean by, I, that I, I I don't know bigger is the is the term, but um, in the early days, you know, I was a flash in the pan, you know, it, it, kind of, and it wasn't necessarily my own fault that I kind of fell away. It, it was a, you know, I've never fit into the mold. I've never fit into the mold. You you absolutely cannot discount luck when it comes yeah. to any career at all, but especially being a musician. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I have a one person show that I kind of explain this in and which is just that, you know, I had three major record deals and they all just disappeared for no reason for me. I wasn't dropped from the labels. The labels either ceased to be, or they got well, I shouldn't say I was a drop, because, but they ceased to be. And then when they got taken over by the by the bigger ones, I usually said, no, I'm not going because that person didn't feel like it toward me like the other person did. I still was misunderstood and it was luck, definitely, or fate or whatever you want to call it. But I just couldn't dig up the trajectory back then. I couldn't build on the Grammy nomination. I couldn't build on the Elton John connection or the, you know, 
as much as I wanted to. I had fans. I mean, I had, you know, my first single was basically a hit single until the record company folded in the middle of, you know, a month after it came out, three weeks after it came out, actually. When something like that happens, when a record is bold, or I think even more majorly, when you lose your, your record deal, do you dust yourself off and, and get back? Do you consider a new career path? I mean, where, where do you go from there? All of the above. Uh, not, not, not a new career path, but um, when it happened to me twice in uh, the late 70s, I, the first time I dusted myself off, got a new record deal. The second time was Casablanca Records. Uh, Neil Bogart, who, who ran it at the time, loved me. And, you know, I, I mean, it was Kiss and Donna Summer, and he wanted to go in more of a rock and roll direction. So he signed me. Those are like easily two of the biggest artists of the era. Right. And... You know, he signed me and really believed in me. Neil, unfortunately, got sick, left the right in the middle of me re- recording that my album for that label. He got sick, left, and the other, the, the new president came in and said to me, after I recorded my record, he said, we don't want you to produce your own record, and we don't want you to write your own song. And I'm... and if I'm anything, I'm a songwriter, probably first. And my first album was nominated for Grammy, and they were all songs written by me and got a lot of, you know, all that stuff, a lot of press, you know. It was an, even though it didn't sell a lot, it was a critically acclaimed album, my first album, Desire Wire, my first single, Survivor. So this is my second album. He tells me that. He says, go in and record some more tracks. Don't write them and don't produce them. So I did. I wrote them. I produced them. And I told him they were, it was so-and-so and so-and-so who did, who, who did them. He loved them. He loved them. So what does that tell you? Well, it didn't even, I mean, because I was a woman in the music business, you know, and um, whatever. And he, he, at that point when he said he loved them, now, this is me being my stubborn self saying, you know, go to hell. I said, you, you, he said, well, I think we want you to be more like Pat Benatar, who, who had not come out during my first album. And I said, if you want Pat Benatar, you go sign Pat Benatar. I mean, to be fair, there are worse things in the world to be than Pat Benatar. No, no. And, and absolutely, all due respect to Pat Benatar, it's not about that. What it's about is how many people told Paul Simon or Paul McCartney or any man who went onto a record label, we want you to be more like so-and-so. No, it's because they had a, a woman was having hits at, on that day in 79, and they wanted a clone. There is absolutely a gender part of it, but you know, I think even more broadly than that, that's just how record labels operate, right? They find yeah. a thing that works, and they want to continue it until it stops working. Exactly. So I said, you go take all that, and you go screw yourselves. And I left the, I left the label. I left the album there. I walked away and I didn't think so. First time dusted myself off. Second time I said, screw you. And I thought I would get another chance. And what happened was I 
couldn't get another record deal. So by 1981, this was 79. So by 1981, I said, and I, I'm sorry, I got, I got something wrong. I did make a second album. It was the third and for Casablanca with, that they put out with Neil Bogart. The third album I made, the new president came in and I left it there. Do you get a sense that once you do something like that, once you tell them, whether actually tell them or <laughs> in, yeah. in a more roundabout way to kind yeah. of screw themselves and, yeah. and leave that that sort of, that that blackballs you in the industry to some degree? I mean, is that part of what made it difficult to get? I don't know. I, I really don't know. It's possible. It's possible. I really don't know. But what ended up happening, and I got married in 1979. So what ended up happening was I said, well, I'm not getting a record deal. Let's, you know, and my husband and I decided to try to have a child. And, and we did. So in 1982, my first daughter was born. And, and that was my job at that point. I did not want to get back out on the road at that point with a baby. And uh, don't forget, you're looking at me with a mustache, but I was the mother. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so we moved, we moved from LA uh, to New York and then to Connecticut and uh, had the baby in, in New York and moved to Connecticut. Did it feel like music might be over for you at that point? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it felt like it, but I still had that uh, desire. It's still that, that yearning, but it did I was afraid that it was over. Could you be happy as a, as a musician just writing songs and, you know, not necessarily having hit records or going out and playing in front of people? Here's the way it was back then for me. Nowadays, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And for the last 20 years. But back then, I was on the trajectory, and I, I, I really don't mean this to sound any way at all, egotistical or anything, but I was on a trajectory trajectory to be kind of a rock star. I mean, that in those days, that's what it was termed. You know, I mean, the way I performed, the jumping off pianos, playing the guitar, you know, doing all that stuff, the way people responded to me. Uh, it was, so that was kind of the, the frame in which I, I recorded and in which I toured and in which I was perceived. So I wasn't, even though I wrote my own songs and did all that, but I didn't consider myself, you know, somebody who could make that leap into doing it alone until I, I mean, doing it another way, doing it behind the scenes much. Although I did produce a couple of bands in New York city uh, in 1980 and uh, stuff like that. I love being a producer and still love it today, even though I don't really do it for other people except myself. But I did do a little bit of that. But songwriting, I really didn't start doing as a function of what I do until after my second child was born in 85. What, what does that mean as a function of what you do? I mean, you were writing songs. I was writing songs, but I was writing songs for myself to record for my own albums. The mindset of switching to writing songs for other people happened over time. And not that, I mean, other people did my songs occasionally just because they found them and they did them. But, but for me to make that 
step into saying, okay, I'm going to write songs for other people or I'm just going to write songs and see what happens and not just for me. Uh, there's a difference. There's a different mindset. And so that started happening after my daughter, Jessie was born. And after my daughter was born, Jessie was born in 85. Then I thought, holy crap, I've got two kids now. And, you know, I still want to do music. What the heck am I going to do? So that's when I kind of said, okay, I'm still going to do music, but let me see what else is out there for me. So things started to change. Obviously, in the last couple of decades, your stuff has become far more personal, it seems. Right. Where, where, where does that change take place? I know, exactly. Here's the thing. So two, two things happened. Uh, I started, when I started thinking about the, na- uh, the uh, songwriting phase, uh, I didn't do all that much. I did a little bit. I would go from Connecticut to New York City and write with some New York City friends who were great songwriters and had hit records and stuff like that. Nothing really ever happened but for me, but it kept me, it, it kept me in the game. And I, I did a few little in the rounds in New York City and I did a little local band in Connecticut. Just, but it was more like just getting myself back from being just a mother because I still didn't want to go on tour, you know, but it being just a mother to doing uh, a little bit more music and getting myself involved again. And then in 1989, I did make another record in 1988, rather, and it came out in 1989 on MCA Records. And so just a short little bit about that. I made another record, 1989. I toured. I opened for Joe Cocker, which was one of the great experiences of my life. Um, full band, all the stuff, absolutely nothing happened with that record because the pro promo guys, it was a rock and roll record, great record produced by Bob Claremountain, mixed by Bob Claremountain, you know, uh, and myself, but Bob, you know, just such an incredible, you know, producer and, but the promotion department at MCA hated it. They hated it. I mean, Al Teller loved me. You know, again, the you know the head of the company sees something in me, but the guys on down, down, and there were women too. But the guy, the promotion guys, hated that record because it was rock and roll, and it was by a woman. So nothing happened with that record. However, and and that was the the year. 1989-1990 was a crucial turning point for me because I had to grieve because at that point I really did think my career is over as an artist. It's done. It's over. I'm in my 30s. <laughs> it ain't happening. I'm in my 30s. Obviously, I can't make music anymore. A- exactly. Because if you were in your 30s back in the early 90s, you were nobody. At this point in your life, it must feel a little bit silly to say that, though. <laughs> well, now I'm like you know, so old that I'm like a a legend in my own mind. But it was a turning point for me because I had to grieve the fact that I was never going to be the rock and roll persona that I thought I was going to be. I was never going to be Bruce Springsteen, never going to be Elton John, never going to be whoever, you know, whoever, never going to have that. 
So I grieved that, not that that's what I had to be at that point. Difficult because you got, you got tastes of it, right? You, you get the, you get the Grease soundtrack early on, you're touring with, El, with Elton John, you have this hit single, yeah. like it must've felt like you were right, right there. I was right there. There's no question. Believe me, I know I was right there. And some of the trajectory was, was maybe detoured through my own choices, and, but some of it was luck or fate or whatever you want to call it. But 1990 was a crucial year for me because in January of 1990, I wrote a song called Send Me an Angel. And probably nobody knows that song. It's on my 2001 Neverland album whatever. It was on the Roy Orbison. I did the Roy Orbison tribute. And on my daughter's, Jesse's birth, fifth birthday, uh, February 24th, 1990. And I sang that song. And Emmylou Harris was there. Bonnie Raitt was there, who was already a friend of mine from back in 1974. We were friends, still is. Uh, So Emmy was there. I met Emmylou Harris there. I met Radney Foster and Bill Lloyd. I met Dwight Yoakam, I met, you know, I, I, I mean, the list is long. I saw old friends who I hadn't seen in years, uh, but it was, it was the songwriter and kind of pre-Americana crowd, you know, the alt country back then. And I, and I sang that song, which acoustically with my friend David Mansfield on, on uh, Dobro, who accompanied me and it was in Los Angeles. And so two things, I wrote that song. And when I wrote that song in January, I said to myself, I will never again write a song that I can't play alone on a guitar or on piano, period. Because before that I'd been writing songs, but I'd, they'd also been records, you know, they were records. There was a band. There was a record. Even if it was acoustic, had acoustic guitar in it, was still not completely. I I couldn't do a solo album like that or a solo performance. So that was the promise I made to myself, and it completely changed my life, my career, my songwriting ability. And then the next month. I'm out in Los Angeles with all these people, some whom I knew and some whom I didn't. And Emmy Lou Harris said to me that night, you've got to go to Nashville. And Radney Foster and Bill Lloyd said to me, if you come to Nashville, look us up. When Emmy Lou Harris tells you to do something, you do it. Absolutely. I love Emmy Lou. By the way, she sings on that song on the album on Neverland. I took her up on it and it took me a few months, but I got a hold of some people who were there, Radney and Bill Lloyd, who I had only met that night. Of course, they're both dear friends of mine and have been since, since then, still today. And I, uh, I went to Nashville a few months later and they welcomed me here with open arms. It wasn't what is your what's your hit right now? If you don't have a hit right now, like in LA and New York, we don't care about you. It was, oh, you're Cindy Bullens. You've done this, that, and the other thing. Come on, we want some fresh blood here. And in nineteen ninety in Nashville, 
It was the era of Garth Brooks, of Trisha Yearwood, of, you know, Susie Boggess, of um, uh, 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 Bella Fleck, of, you know, mm -hmm. Newgrass Revival, people who were, uh, had this exciting kind of new approach to country music and were actually writing lyrics that didn't include, well, Garth Brooks did, but, you know, some of them didn't with beer and... And in, in several of those cases were genuine superstars because of it. Absolutely. And so I was really fortunate because I arrived here. Now, I didn't come to live. I just came because I had two kids and a husband at home. But I came here and I... Uh, so I started commuting here. And I wrote Hammer and Nails with Radney Foster, which became a hit. Uh, country hit. I wrote with Jess Leary and we had a couple of charting records. I wrote with Kai Fleming and Marianne Kennedy. I wrote with Matresa Berg. I wrote with Al Anderson. You know, I wrote with Kim Ritchie. I wrote with, you know, I could go down the list, you know, obviously Radney Foster and Bill Lloyd. And, uh, and I saw Emmy and these people became friends of mine and became my my group, my core support system. And so I kept coming, you know, I, I mean, I had little kids and sometimes I bring my kids or one of my kids with me. And sometimes I wouldn't. And sometimes my, you know, husband would bring them down if I had to stay more than a week or something. But basically I came down here and I commuted here for about a week, every six weeks or so, maybe eight weeks uh, for the next uh, five years. And well, it's been longer yep. than that, but that's the that's when something happens where, uh, you know, I turn into an artist again. But that those five years of songwriting between 1990 and 1995 in Nashville, co-writing gave me the tools, gave me more tools that I could possibly imagine: friendships, tools, support system, acceptance. And I recreate, you know, I, I got to recreate my career and my life. You mentioned Jesse a few times during that part of the conversation. When you lose a child, I assume that it, you recontextualize a lot about your life, your, your career. Maybe a lot of things start to feel trivial in comparison to something that, that massive. Was that a point in your life when it felt like, you know, maybe music wasn't a thing you would do anymore? And at what point did it feel okay to, to play music? Again. When you when when a parent loses a child, uh, and I I don't want to speak personally for every bereaved parent, but I've worked with and met at this point thousands of bereaved parents. So I can speak for us and say there is before the child's death in your life, and there is after the child's death in your life. It's a delineation line marker where the two worlds don't meet ever again. And so there's before and there's after at life before and life after. So I really thought I'm never going, I don't know if I'm going to live except that I have another child to take care of, let alone, uh, right and i can remember about maybe three months after jesse's death 
uh, or actually it was less than that because it was probably like maybe a month or two after Jesse's death. And Beth Nielsen Chapman called me, who was a good friend. And she said, you will write again. You will write again. And she had already done Sand and Water after losing her husband, that album, which I loved. And I thought, I said, no, no, I won't. No, I'm never going to, I'm never going to do anything again as long as I live except cry and, and walk and go to the grocery store and get Cheerios for my other daughter. You know, I mean, it just could, didn't compute and trying not to make this too long, but three months after Jesse's death, I was wandering aimlessly in my own home as I did a lot. And I saw my guitar sitting on a stand and I hadn't picked it up. And I did, I picked it up. It was almost like a transmission, although I I don't know if I've ever used that word with this story. And I've told this story. In the sense of channeling something? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. All I know is that a song emerged from my being at that moment of picking up the guitar about the death of my daughter. And it was, and it was, um, it was like a, uh, I don't, I don't know. I still don't know, but it's called somewhere between heaven and earth, the song. And it at once, it was a horrifying experience to write a song. I'm a songwriter to write a song about the death of my own child. At the same time, there was this, and I talk about this in my show, there was this tiny little spark of energy from writing it while I was writing it and having written it. So I recognized that there was this like little tingle or spark or whatever of creativity and life. You know, it's like this little spark of life. And I didn't tell anybody about that. I just wrote it and cried. And about three months later, I wrote another one called uh, In Better Hands. And then three months after that, I wrote another one called A Thousand Shades of Grey. And that's when I said, oh, okay, this is going to happen. I'm going to continue to write songs all about all different moments of grief after the death of Jesse. So I went to Nashville after those three songs and I gathered my buddies from the studio um, and went into the studio because I had nothing. You, you have to remember, I, I had no, wasn't like I said, Oh great. I'm going to go record these songs and then I'm going to, you know, whatever I, I had, I needed something to do. And all I knew to do, all I knew was that I had written three songs and I was going to go and gather my friends together all on me. I didn't have a record deal. I didn't want a record, nothing, just for something to do. And I I went and I recorded those three songs down here in Nashville with my good friends, all of whom knew what I was doing and knew why I was doing it. And I went home and I thought, okay, I've done that. And then a few months later, I went to Paris and I came home. I had never been to Paris and it was something I always wanted to do. So I went and wrote a song called The Lights of Paris. And then I knew, I said, okay, 
This is going to be an album. All right. I you know, so cut to the chase. I end up writing about seven songs. I go to Rodney Crow. I call Beth Chapman. I said, because Rodney produced her record. I said, Sand and Water. And I knew him. I knew him, but I didn't, he wasn't a friend. He wasn't that close. I knew Rodney. We'd had conversations. And I called Beth and I said, do you think Rodney would help me with this record? She said, call him. And so I did. And he said, come see me. So I came to Nashville. I played him the songs that I had. He said, I will, I had already had the three that I had already produced and they were done. So there were four more. He said, I'll do these. And he said, but you have to write three more songs that are about Jesse. And I thought that's not going to happen because I, I don't know how that seven came about. Anyway, long story short, I did write them. It was like everybody came out of the woodwork to help me make that record somewhere between heaven and earth, which is my legacy today to this day, which has been my biggest commercial success, which I didn't ask for, which has been a service to people around the globe. And I say around the globe because I've had, I know that people have heard it on every continent and have, I've heard from people on every continent and in many, many, many different countries around the world who've heard that album. And so that my daughter, Jessie, and I do believe she compelled me to do this because I didn't want to do it. There were months when I said, I can't do this. She's the one who made me an artist again. And Artemis Records, Danny Goldberg, heard the record through a friend of mine. It was done, and I was just going to do it as a charity album for children's cancer. Having It was done, paid for, designed, everything. And he said, no, I want to license it. I want to put it out. And he had signed Steve Earle. And I was his second signing on Artemis and he, and he put it out. And, and even that, I mean, there's so many side stories to this about, you know, you know, me being terrified that I was making a commercial album about, you know, I, I, I just so many nuances to, to, to doing this kind of thing when you've lost a child and you're writing about it. And Bearing my soul and all that. Anyway, it became uh, kind of a phenomenon. It became a critic's darling. It won some awards. It became the top 10 album of many newspapers of that year, 1999-2000. I went on tour with it. Um, and that's really when my artist career started back up. I want to get back to this idea of having two lives before and after this huge event in your life. Is that what transitioning feels like? Is there a life before 2011 and a life after 2011? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. In fact, and that's a great observation, about a year and a half after starting to transition, which itself was kind of black and white, because I, if you'd have told me a day before, it wasn't a revelation because I always knew about myself, but the day before it became a possibility in my mind. What does that mean? It became a possibility. And was there a moment? Did something happen to trigger it? Yeah. Yeah, there was a moment. A friend of mine called me, a younger friend of mine who I'd mentored in another capacity for a few years, a young woman 
who moved away from Maine. I was living in Maine, moved away from Maine to uh, Boston and then New York. And I hadn't heard from her in about two years. And I got a Facebook message one day saying, call me. I have to tell you something. Long story short, that day I call, we, we connected and she told me that she had started transitioning a year before. I could tell by her voice because it was lower a year before I was living as a man. And it was like a bomb exploded in my mind. Did he get a sense from you that you were living in a similar situation? Was anybody, did anyone else in your life know that you were a man? Yeah, people, people knew. I hadn't talked directly about it to this person. But instinctually people understood that about you? Yeah. I mean, let's say he wasn't surprised. My daughter wasn't surprised. I mean, I had told my daughter about the way I felt, you know, and my ex-husband knew, uh, he knew from the beginning when we got married that this is the way I felt. But I, I, I honestly didn't think I would ever, it would ever be a reality for me. And I, and after I got off the phone with my friend, I literally, literally fell to my knees and sobbed. I felt this wave of grief that I had never lived. I, I, I don't even know the words really, but I had never lived my life as my true self. And so that was the moment, and it was early July of 2011, so this nine years ago, this right now, and it was no going back from there. I called my daughter, sobbing. I said, I've got to talk to you. We talked. She said, Mom, you have to go do something about it. So I, I because for me, it was the one, you know, you know, you go to therapy over your life, you go, you know, I've been in recovery, you, you know, you do all the stuff that you do as you get older, if you want to, you know, be a mature person, you try to work on yourself, you know, and I'd done all those things. I tried this, that and other modalities and stuff, but I'd never, ever addressed straight on that I felt like a man in a woman's body. And that's the way I used to say it to people. So there wasn't a word transgender, you know, until the 80s. What form does that conversation take with your now ex-husband? My life, this is why my show is called Not an Ordinary Life. Because... <laughs> I can think, to be fair, I can think of a number of reasons, Sydney. <laughs> no. Well, here's another one. <laughs> so so my, my ex-husband is a gay man. And he, I knew he was gay and he knew, I mean, I wasn't out as a transgender person in 1970. But he was cool being married to a man. Exactly. He, I, I say in the show jokingly, which he refutes, but I say in the show, he, I, I was the closest thing to, he could come to a man and still have kids. That's, that's what I say. And it's a joke and it gets a laugh and, and uh, he refutes it, but I, st- I still think there's something there. So when I told him, actually, after my uh, the, my my talk with Dal- Dallas, my friend, and after you know this kind of breakthrough uh, nine years ago, he was like, "What took you so long?" You know, it, it's and my daughter said, "Mom, it's not like anybody's going to know the difference." You know, because I still have my own wardrobe. I still, 
you know, I still wear the same clothes. I still have the same mannerisms. Yeah, my voice is a tiny bit lower and I'm able to grow a mustache and my hair is thinning. So that's about the difference there is. Yeah, well, take me through some of the, the kind of pragmatic concerns when it comes to your career. I mean, obviously, this has been your passion for your entire life and you plan to continue being a musician, what are, what are some of the kind of the day-to-day concerns you had while transitioning? Well, if we go back to the delineation line of life before and life after, I came here to Nashville and I went to the Americana Music uh, 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 Conference back in 2012. So I was about a year and a half into transitioning. I had had my chest surgery by then. And I had changed my name, but I didn't look any different. So when I went to the conference, and I, I, I had been hiding for about a year and a half, and I went to the conference just to kind of try to dip my toe into, back into, you know, the music and beat it, come to that. I hadn't been in Nashville for a while, a couple of years, and I came and it was horrible. It was horrible. Now, yeah, did I see some friends? Yes, I saw some friends. But half of the people called me Cindy and introduced me as she. And half of the people knew I changed my name and called me Sydney. And it wasn't, this has nothing to do with people not get, not getting it. This has nothing to do with that. Because I don't even care. My sisters, my brother still calls me Cindy. My sister, you know, they try but they slip up because they're my siblings. I don't care. You know, just don't do it out at a restaurant. It's hard to live with somebody for that yeah. many decades and make those transitions. Right. So my daughter yeah. calls me mom because that's what I wanted to call me, whether I'm in public or not, unless it's a, it, well, not a volatile situation, but unless it's inappropriate and then she calls me Sid. But, but the point is it's just not about the other people because I can't blame people for not knowing or not keeping up with me or not, you know, recognizing me as something different. But I didn't know who I was at that moment. And I can remember driving in my car away one, one day after about three days of the conference. And I said, I can't do, I, 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 I couldn't go back to the conference. I didn't go back to the conference. Thank God I have some friends here who love me and who I love, who just really just were with me and sat with me and who I, a couple of friends I was able to share this with and who supported me. I realized, I, I was feeling this deep grief. You brought it, brought it back to like, is this a delineation line like you losing Jesse? Nothing's like losing a child. This is a piece of candy compared to losing a child. However, I had this realization when I was down here for that conference after about three days. What is this feeling I'm feeling after being in the midst of all these people and not knowing who I am? I had to grieve the death of Cindy Bullens because the feeling I was feeling was very close to what I felt after Jesse's death, not anywhere near as deep or as profound or well, it's as profound in its own way, but not as cataclysmic, you know, not as shattering. It's cataclysmic in the sense that you know that literally nothing is going to be. Exactly. Nothing's going to be the same. What the fuck am I doing? What have I done? Is that, is that regret? Here's the thing. 
I was no longer Cindy, but I wasn't yet Sydney. Even though I changed my name, I and you ask any trans person, there's a middle point. And I ended up writing a song, which is on my new album called Purgatory Road. And Little Pieces was about, is another song on the album, the opening track, which is about losing myself in little pieces and watching it kind of fall away. But Purgatory Road was written right there, right then, that week, driving around in my car because I felt in purgatory. I I wasn't. I wasn't this, but I wasn't yet that. And I didn't know where that was going to go over here. I didn't know where Sid, what, who Sidney was going to be. Do you get a sense of when you became? So I went home and I said, okay, I'm hiding out until I feel like Sydney. So it was about six more months before I ventured out musically. And I did it. My dear friend and colleague, Deborah Holland, who's one of the trio of the refugees with Wendy Waldman, which I have, I said, and she called me Sid from the beginning. I loved it. And she said, okay, Sid, I have a proposition for you because she knew I was hiding out. She said, I'm going to the folk festival, the Folk Alliance Festival in in, uh, Toronto, and I want you to come and play and sing backup for me. And I said, yes. And so it wasn't about me, but I got to go on her coattails. I didn't have any showcases or anything as my, for me. And I went with her. I met her there. We stayed in the same room. She had her showcases. I played guitar. I sang. And I started, ta- and again, many of my friends were there. And I, and I started, I was looking different, a little different. But it was the first time that I felt more whole as Sid in public. And I had some deep conversations with some friends who hadn't seen me, who didn't get it or didn't understand, but were fully supportive. And I thank God for that. I, I I will thank Deborah forever because she, well, first of all, we love each other as friends and she kind of intuited what I needed and that kind of got me started and got, and I really did. I was able to notice myself feeling better. You know what I mean? Sometimes if you're in a, you know, if you don't have any mirrors around you, you don't know what you look like. And some, so sometimes you have to go into a situation where you can actually see how you feel in that situation to know how you feel. is that a metaphor or, or is that literal i mean were you was there a period when you were uncomfortable looking at yourself in the um, mirror no i i don't think i was literally uncomfortable looking at myself in the mirror transitioning although it was it was interesting uh still is sometimes i mean i i still well, now it's more about aging than it is about the transition, you know. Sometimes it might be probably difficult to tell which is which. Yeah, exactly. So, and I'm still changing a little bit, not not much anymore. But uh, no, it wasn't really a metaphor. It was more like, I mean, when I grew my mustache, that was a big deal. But it took me seven years to grow the mustache. So, because we come from a hairless family and... But I'm happy with the mustache because, you know, when, if I shave my mustache off, I just look like 
an older, a little more masculine Cindy Bullens. So it sounds like you were incredibly lucky from the standpoint of that you had all of these supportive people who are willing to take that journey with you. Did you lose anybody in your life? Or, you know, do you get the sense that like maybe either friends or fans weren't willing to go along with you for that? If I lost anybody close to me, they haven't told me. Uh, My brother and his wife have had a hard time with it, even though he's my older brother. And he's said to me, I, you know, I knew this about you for, ever but he still had a hard time my my two sisters had a hard time in the beginning only because you know I, we're siblings so it's it's a different thing it wasn't that they were get they were homophobic or transphobic or you know anything like that they it's just hard and they're afraid people are afraid for you and i was afraid yeah. for myself i'm still afraid in some capacity the last 4 years i mean it's been such a flashpoint really terrible horrible and you know I'm lucky. I'm white, and I change. You know I am now a white man, and you can pass. I can pass. So I'm lucky, uh, and 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 believe me, I don't forget it for a minute. You know when my wife and I walk down the street, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody. I could stand beside Mitch McConnell. Not stand. I could stand beside him washing my hands in a in a restroom beside Mitch McConnell and he would never know who I am. That'd be a great little trick to pull off on Mitch. Wouldn't, wouldn't I it? love to do that? <laughs> so I know I'm lucky, but I have had so much support and I've even had support from, I, you know, I have friends that, that run the gamut of political. These days it gets a little dicier, but. political, religious, and so on, because I've done a ton of charity work since the death of my daughter. Tons all over the country. So I'm involved in charities. I'm involved in golf tournaments. I'm involved with professional, you know, athletes. I'm involved, you know, I do things with people. So it really runs the gamut. And even my uh, right wing, let's say, evangelical, whatever you want to call them, have supported me, at least to my face. And I can't, you know, here's the thing. You can't ask somebody to understand it because it's like losing a child. You can't understand it unless you've lost a child or any other. Nobody can understand going through what you're going through unless they've gone through it. You know, so... I don't ask people to understand. I'm absolutely happy to talk to them about any aspect of it, of how I feel and how I feel inside and in my mind and in my heart and in my soul. And, and that I know without a shadow of a doubt that this is a real physiological state. I, I, or con- it's not a condition because I don't want it to sound like a disease. Not something you can cure. It's a thing. It's real. Trust me. I have known it my entire life. That moment when you got off the phone with him and you started crying and that moment later, you know, when you felt like you were grieving the death of Cindy, was any of that grief due to, I don't know if regret is the right word, but 
that you hadn't done this sooner, that, that you had lived so much of your life, not necessarily under a lie, but certainly under, I guess, false pretenses. Two different things. When I got off the phone with Dallas, the first moment, the sobbing was that I, I'm not sure I, I would call it regret because I, it was such an overwhelming feeling of loss. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, I don't know what exactly that feeling was. I guess it was grief, but it was more of this sense of profound loss uh, that I hadn't lived my life as me. It was different a year and a half later when I, when I felt that grief after the Americana conference in 2012, when I realized that I was grieving the death of Cindy, because don't forget when I had that first moment, I was still Cindy. I was just, and I was happy to be Cindy. I mean, I just was acceptance. I was like, okay, I'm, done pretty well. I'm just going to live my, I'm, I'm me. Now I don't make any pretenses about being a feminine woman or anything. And I'm just who I am, who I am. I figured that was the, the rest of my life. But when I was grieving the death of Cindy, that was realizing that it, I was slipping away, that that persona, that person who was, was slipping away. And I didn't yet know what was coming with Sydney, what was going to happen to Sydney? Who was Sydney going to be? So there, re, there was a flash of regret in that moment, in the form of, like I said, what the fuck have I done? It's easy to forget a lot of this in hindsight, but even in 2011, 2012, that was still something pretty radical. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that, like, in spite of everything that's happened with Trump and everybody else, you know, there, there, there is in a lot of circles, a lot more acceptance of it. It must have felt like for most of your life, it wasn't even a possibility. It did. It felt like not a possibility. And don't forget, even as it became more of a, uh, which you're right, in 2011, it was barely, yeah. I mean, Chaz Bono had just transitioned yeah. and that was the big thing. And, and then Laverne Cox was a couple of years right, later, right? And Orange the, the Black. Jenner and, and, you know, but yeah. it was, it, it was still this kind of weird, what's going on, what, you know, it wasn't on the tip of everybody's tongue and people were, you know, with gay marriage, people were just starting to accept being gay as, okay, people are gay and people are not, you know. I also think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I also think that people just have more difficulty contextualizing a transgender man because it's just not, it's, it's not in the zeitgeist in the same way. Well, transgender man or a transgender woman, either one. I mean, usually when you hear these stories about transgender people, like, you know, Chaz being yeah. a, an, an exception, but like it, it is usually the, the Laverne Coxes of the world right. or, or the Caitlyn Jenners of the world. Right. Yeah, no, the trans, the story, my wife always used to say this, the story of the trans man has not been told. And I think it is more now. There's a lot more of us now. And some people are right out there. I mean, Ian Harvey, who's a comedian who was on the show Transparent, who's also from Maine, by the way. And, um, you know, there's, uh, there's some other musicians, Joe Stevens, 
So there are some more other trans men now that are still uh, just coming in. But um, no, it was it, 2011. It was still kind of a radical thing, as you say. Now, I mean, it's it, my wife calls it quantum time. It's like everything's happening really quickly. You can see it now. I mean, literally now with the protests and the, you know, everything else. Everything's happening in quantum time. It's just like, okay, we don't have any more time to screw around. Let's do it. So, and I think Trump brought that on. 2020 is quantum time because it is both the longest and shortest year. <laughs> Strodenberg's year yeah. where it's like time is dragging and also going at an incredible speed. Absolutely. And didn't we all, I, I don't know about you, but I was glad to see 2019 go. And I was so and excited about years, Every year it's been, it's been next. Thank God it's 2017. I exa- thank God it's 2018. Unbelievable. And so it can always get worse. Oh, it's going to get worse, but it's going to get better eventually. I have hope. I have a little bit of hope. Discounting, I know it's difficult, but the pandemic and everything else. Pretend I asked you this question in in February of 2020. Are you happy? (laughs) Uh, I'm happier than I've ever been. You know, I mean, there have been moments in, in life when I've, I've felt happy. I mean, the births of my children and uh, many moments of joy in my life. Um, but I feel since I've transitioned, it's my whole world has opened up. The world has opened up to me. I mean, I... The first two years were very difficult for the transition for the reasons we've discussed. I, about the second year, I started to come into myself and uh, it's gotten better ever since. I mean, I met my wife, Tanya, Tanya Taylor Rubenstein, who was, uh, I met her when I was writing my show, my one person show, Somewhere Between Not an Ordinary Life, which was to be the bridge between Cindy and Sydney, which was, I performed it between 16 and 18 around the country. And I met her. uh, She was the director of my show. She helped me form the show and and everything. And we got together after, after that, not during the writing of it or, but she's opened up my life in a way. I mean, I was a dyed in the wool single person. I can't say a bachelor because I was a woman for a lot of it. After I had a relationship after I got divorced from my husband, after that relationship ended in 2005, uh, I, that was it for me. I was like, nope, never again. I was perfectly happy living in Maine, being a grandparent, you know, when I was hiding, by the way. And to compound that, I mean, I assume that, that, transitioning must make it feel even more impossible because it's just, it, it's an extra yeah, layer. I just said, well, who's going to want an old trans man? You know, it's like an ex musician who is, you know, whatever. And yeah, I just, but I didn't even want it. I was like, I don't even care. I just, I just want to be who I am. And I, you know, got a couple of jobs. I was a personal trainer and I did this and that, you know, just, you know, just kind of doing other things. I, I did music. I had the refugees, my trio. So I would go out on the road and do and write, make albums with them in that kind of Netherland time when I was transitioning. So I kept my foot in music or my hand in music, but I really didn't have any 
goals until I knew I needed to write the show. That was a compulsion as well. It seems to me that when my life happens, big things happen. It's like, I don't make an album for 10 years, but then I get compelled. You know, I don't make this do this, but then I get compelled. So I was compelled to write the show. I did. I've done it around the country. I made, I was, I was actually slated to do it again until the pandemic. So that was wonderful because that I got to show people Cindy because it was multimedia. So I had all the pictures and I played music and stuff. So I got to show people the bridge from and tell people about Cindy to Sydney. Plus I got to tell all the other stuff like Elton John and being a housewife in Connecticut and, you know, with two kids and, you know, the death of my daughter and then, you know, moving into my transition. So, so that was a really, really wonderful thing. 